This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, welcome to the Remnant Radio. My name is Michael Roundtree. Joshua Lewis is out today, and uh, it's just me and Michael Miller doing a live Q and A. We had two hundred, and, and by live I mean not live. Heck, it's Thanksgiving week, so you're probably at home preparing your belly with prayer and fasting for a feast day tomorrow of Thanksgiving. But Michael and I are, uh, are pre-recording this, but in 24 hours, we had 230 questions sent in about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and uh, just kind of all things Holy Spirit. And so we're going we're gonna to walk through a whole bunch of them. Sorry if we don't get to your specific question, uh, but we're just going to jump right in because we have a whole lot. Before I do, uh, Miller over there in the basement of Colorado. How are you doing? I hear you went to the Evangelical Theological Society this week. Tell us a little bit about it. I did. I, you know, Josh may be out, but I am not. I'm in the basement as always. Uh, but I got let out for a short amount of time to go hear some scholars talk and quibble over very, very small things, though those small things are a lot of fun for me. Uh, it was awesome, man. We got to, um, we got to hang out with some of these guys. Got to see Sam while we were there. Um, got to meet uh, Paul Copen, who's going to be coming on the show uh, later on in December, I believe, which he's, is really cool the, because yeah. he's the one who does the monster god. We've been trying yeah, to get him. He's got a moral monster. Yeah, yeah. So he covers a lot of the the hard issues and stuff like you know the Canaanite conquest and harem and some of the laws that seem to be kind of bad but then when you take a closer look at it and you get some context to it you go oh okay this is god preserving goodness and order and continuing to do what he can to extend eden so anyway i think you guys are going to be lined up for a good show when that comes um yeah and then uh who else do we meet i met a number of people but it was just a lot of fun man got some good resources nice thing about going to ets is you get a discount on books and commentaries so i ended up getting my hands on a you know uh Septuagint uh, with the Apocrypha, all translated in, into English. And then I also got my hands on Tom Schreiner's commentary on Revelation. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking forward to reading your book now, Michael, because I actually have a uh, need to read it because I'm probably going to be going through Revelation at my church this, oh, cool. uh, once we finish Deuteronomy. Yeah. Well, all I got left on the Revelation book is footnotes. And then, I don't know, I'll probably, uh, probably shop it around with a publisher or something like that i haven't really gotten that far we've we've uh, got some ideas for you about that josh and i talked to a couple of publishing companies yeah i know he told me a little bit anyway we we should uh we should jump into the show like i said 230 questions so we've actually categorized these to give you a little bit of a preview about what to expect we have a a section on healing and miracles section on prophecy and prophets then gift of tongues and just other spiritual gifts faith and miracles 
just church practices and theology, special focus on uh, uh, on deliverance and oppression. And then we just kind of have some miscellaneous questions. So we'll see how far we get in this. But Miller, here is the first question, and I will let you start on it. And so uh, the question is, can diabolic resistance hinder healing or miracles? And I'm assuming by diabolic resistance, I mean, that's got to be the devil, right? So uh, something devilish, maybe demonic uh, uh, oppression, demonization of some kind. Uh, does that hinder healing and miracles? Uh, yeah. So I've got one scriptural evidence that I'll just give off the top of my head and then an anecdotal story that I think will help. Um, it's an anecdotal story that Michael, you're going to hate that I share because it's going to ruffle some feathers, but I'm going to do it anyways. I, mean, uh, I don't so, care about ruffling feathers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, uh, it, unless it's it a story to, about like, I don't know, like something embarrassing to me. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't remember you ever casting demons out of me. Have you? <laughs> Not yet, man. <laughs> I haven't fasted and prayed enough for the kind that are yeah, in you. It's, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a okay. lot. I mean, when you're dealing with an infestation, it's just different. But, uh, <laughs> uh, well, we certainly know that um, demonic spirits do cause illnesses, right? So you've got the the boy who's blind and mute uh, that Jesus cast a demon out of. You've got the one that's um, throwing himself into the fire and into the water, trying to commit suicide. You know, the father comes up to Jesus begging for, for help and says that, you know, none of the disciples could do it. Uh, they weren't able to get the boy free. And Jesus said, this kind only comes out through prayer. So there is the the thing about this is this is not just a healing that's needed. This is a demonic spirit causing these problems. Now it may be both a physical issue that needs a healing, and it may be a demon, or just maybe a demon that causes the physical issue. But one way or the another, the healing isn't going to happen until you deal with the demonic spirit. And so um, similarly, I, I was at uh, it was this, this was in my church um, about two years ago. Um, I had a couple of people ask the question, "Why do some get healed and others don't?" And I said, well, you know, there are times when somebody is sick for natural reasons and times when there is a demonic entity that's causing this problem. So let's take two people with identical digestive issues. One is um, just has, you know, sort of run of the mill stomach issues, uh, not caused by anything demonic. You know, all that's required is a gift of healing to see that person healed. The other person, maybe they, when you pray for them, they didn't get healed because at some point in time they had, you know, consumed blood, which is expressly forbidden both in the uh, Noahic covenant and as well as uh, in Acts 15 after the Gentiles are led into the church. And just before people start freaking out and saying, does that mean I can't have a rare steak? Yes, you can still have rare steak. That is not blood. That is myoglobin or pigment. Uh, blood is hemoglobin. So anyway, um, right then I had two people in my church raise their hands and uh, one of the girls that raised her hand, uh, I look at her, I go, you have digestive issues and at one point in time you consume blood. And sure enough, she was on the mission field, uh, served in Uganda for a number of years and that was a, a normal dish that they would eat. And so I uh, prayed for her and as I you know, started walking her through a prayer of repentance. She tries to get the words out, Father, would you forgive me for the consumption of blood? But instead, all she can say is, Father, would you... And then can't say anything. And I look at her and I says, it's not allowing you to speak, is it? She shakes her head now and she just got this look of fear on her face. And so then, you know, command that thing to, to release its grip off of her mouth. Uh, she struggles to get the words out, but she does. And then we cast the thing out of her and she got free. Uh, 
And so, yes, uh, both anecdotally and scripturally, you do see examples of demons causing these things. And therefore, to get rid of those things, you have to deal with the demonic. Yeah. Now, so, yeah, on that, and just even to touch on the blood thing, I mean, what I think I what you were getting at was <laughs> like, it, not not even like that we care about ruffling feathers, but just the fact that it's like, de, you know, a it's matter a of debate of, of how do we apply this? Like, and, and even the fact that you mentioned the covenant with Noah, that they weren't, uh, that even then they weren't supposed to eat the blood. I think what you're trying to, you're, you're sort of subtly making the argument that this wasn't just a mosaic law that, you know, has been like fulfilled in Jesus and, uh, you, you know, like in the mosaic not, law, not kosher, kosher dietary restrictions. Kosher dietary restrictions. We find in Acts ten and eleven and other places, uh, these have been replaced. And I think what I hear you saying is, like the restriction on not eating blood predates Moses. It postdates Moses, Acts fifteen. So you'd say that still applies. Now people can debate that all all you want. Miller's just telling his story, and, he, and he's also sharing his own conviction on this. Now, uh, help us understand just on a practically, I, I want to jump into that for a moment. Um, what do, like, if, like a medium rare steak, I mean, of course, people go to the restaurant, like, how do you like your steak? I want it bloody. You know, that's what they say. Like, I, I want my cow mooing. So you're saying, hey, that's not actually blood. What is actually blood? Like, Who's out there just like downing the O positive besides Dracula? <laughs> well, believe it or not, there are people who do that. And, you know, they're usually part of some sort of cult, ritual abuse. Sometimes people do things in fraternities and sororities, believe it or not, uh, as part of oaths when they join those things, which I would also recommend you not do take those kind of oaths. Um, but uh, it's a common dish in most parts of the world. Most uh, countries will take pig's blood and put it in a ground meat and create a sausage out of it that's got coagulated pig's, uh, pig's blood. There's a dish in Costa Rica called morchia, which has coagulated blood in it, um, as, as well as places in China and Africa. I mean, a lot of places, you got to think about it, they use every part of the animal um, for sustenance. And yet this is one thing that God has expressly forbidden. And I, I would take a pretty hard stance on that one. And I could, we could debate it. That would actually be a great episode for a future date. Is blood uh, kosher or is it expressly forbidden? I, I can, I can picture the thumbnail Josh creates right now. It is going to oh, be yeah. Dracula. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think I would agree with your conviction. I mean, the... The repeated statement we see in scripture is that the life is in the blood. And so when Jesus applies his blood on the cross for the sake of our redemption, it's because his life is in the blood. And so when God looks down upon the shed blood of Jesus and we place our faith in him, then the life of Jesus is imputed to us. If you will, we are incorporated into him. And so the life is in the blood. And I, I can see that being not just a, a Moses thing. So, uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's interesting. Now, one of the, the things that you mentioned the at the first part, you know, that 2% of your answer that actually had the Bible in it. I'm just messing uh. with you. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, at the beginning, you were talking about the story of like, hey, this kind only comes by pr comes out by prayer and fasting, um, or by prayer. 
And if you look at that story and it, well, here, first of all, cause this brings us to our second question. Uh, how do we, uh, how to discern diabolic resistance and can communal fasting and prayer, uh, prayer chains break it. So I'm actually jumping to Miller. You can, I'll let you jump on the, how to discern the, uh, demonic resistance. And then I'm going to jump on the communal fasting and prayer. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to come back to that story, this kind of only comes out by prayer or prayer and fasting. Uh, the reason I'm saying it that way is that if you look at the footnotes in most translations, uh, the, or the kind of main like manuscripts would that, that we go to and translate our Bibles from, and there, there are some variants. And so it's hard to tell, but like, it seems as though the original manuscripts just said only by prayer, but there's some debate over it. And so some translations like oh, prayer and fasting, I think for sure Jesus must have said prayer. And the reason is, and not prayer and fasting. And the reason is that uh, I think it's Matthew nine where Jesus says like, Hey, the bridegroom is with you. You're not going to fast while the bridegroom is here, but when I'm gone, then you'll fast again. So it seems really unlikely that Jesus would rebuke his disciples for not fasting enough when he just said, you're in a season of redemptive history, this little three years where I'm in my public ministry and you're following me where we're not going to fast. So I doubt he said prayer and fasting. But with that said, fasting was probably added in there uh, by somebody, uh, I don't know, a few centuries later, who uh, who discerned the effectiveness of fasting with prayer, and and maybe for whatever reason they just they put the word fasting in there, and maybe it was from their own personal experience. Like I will say, from my personal experience, yes, absolutely, fasting helps. In fact, if I know that I'm going to be casting demons out later that day, I don't always know. Sometimes I just kind of walk into a situation, but uh, but if I know. Uh, I'll often fast for that reason. I definitely, I, I sense a greater closeness to the Lord. I, I hear from the Lord more clearly and have experienced more power in those situations. So uh, I do, yeah, and communal, yes. The more people you have praying and fasting, the better. So uh, so yeah, I think that can be a big, uh, a big part of breakthrough in any kind of prayer, honestly. And that's just the whole of Scripture we see that prayer and fasting and the more people we get doing it, the more power there is. Now, Miller, uh, you can add something to my answer or you can talk to us about discerning demonic resistance. Well, uh, I don't, so I don't personally think I have a gift of discernment spirits. Now I know somebody in my church that definitely does. Um, and she sees things like quite literally can see, uh, demonic dead forces. People. Yeah. I see dead people. Um, <laughs> And so I know a number of people that are like that, but that doesn't mean that just because you don't have a gift of discernment of spirits does not mean that you're not going to be able to detect demonic presence. Um, and so yeah, I'm always a little bit hesitant to, to describe, here's various symptoms, right? But um, these are things I can just say that I've seen with some commonality. Like I gave you the example of when I'm praying with a person and they can't get the words out, suddenly they're not able to speak. Um, some obvious demonic things is their personality changes. They have lapses of memory. Um, you know, they may growl at you or bark at you. Oh well, yeah. Or those kind of things. Um, but I tell you the biggest, the biggest thing to me is if you've never been through a deliverance and you have a history of sin, that to me tells me a whole lot. It means you've likely never been, um, 
you've never had those things kicked out of you. And this is actually kind of a, a hotly debated topic, but it gets into this idea, uh, can Christians have a demon? And I would just say, if Christians cannot have demons, then why did Jesus ever do deliverance ministry to begin with? Why did any of the early church do deliverance ministry to begin with? Uh, why not just get everybody saved? Let them pray a prayer of salvation and baptize and let that be done. Uh, but the fact is, that's not how either the apostles did it. That's not how the early church did it. They walked people through deliverance, daily deliverances uh, up until uh, baptism and sometimes after. And so, um, yeah, I'd say the, the biggest indication to me of there being a demonic spirit behind it is the propensity towards certain habitual sins uh, and or you've just never been through deliverance, but you have a history of sin. Um, I think those things are really good indicators that probably need to go through some sort of deliverance ministry. Um, I'm thinking of a friend of mine who, you know, he struggled with anger, and this was more recent. Uh, and he would find himself reacting in anger that was disproportionate to the circumstances around him. And so uh, that to me is, a, is an indication that there might be something demonic involved. Uh, and sure enough, there was, and it came in when he was in the third grade. He started partnering with uh, an, an, a spirit of anger to protect himself whenever he would feel dumb or, or uh, shamed. And so we cast that thing out of him and he was free. And now he notices like very dramatically, it's been a month, uh, and he notices a dramatic shift in how he feels about certain stimuli that would normally cause him to be quite angry. And he just feels compassion and doesn't feel you know, swelling up anger. Yeah. So, well, right. But, you know, I think I would also say that, like, I know that a lot of people will listen to these stories and they'll be like, do I have a demon? Maybe I have a demon and I have, you know, struggles in my Christian life and, and, and start to get all worried about possibly having a demon. If you think you maybe have a demon, just start asking the Lord and he'll just show you. He's like, so he's so good. You don't have to be like the worst thing would be like, okay, it's one thing to be tormented by demons. It's another thing to be tormented by the thought that you might have demons and you don't. And so, like, just ask the Lord. He's a good father. And just keep asking him, and he will show you. And uh, and you'll just start to feel peace one way or another about whatever it is that he's showing you. So even if he shows you, like, hey, yeah, you do have a demon. And then you just you, uh, then just get some friends and pray over you. And it's it's not magical. Like, you don't, it's not like... You don't need a man of power for the hour to, to pray over you. I, some people at my church that uh, that I did a, I preached a sermon on demonization because I walk into the book of Acts and Acts chapter eight. It's like people are shrieking as demons are leaving them, and so the subject just came up, and that's how I that's how I preach the Bible. Miller does the same thing. We tackle subjects as they come up, and afterwards, someone in my church just uh, you know they're just in what we call a D group. A discipleship group, and they're just, you know, shared about it. And one guy has a particular struggle and, um, and uh, with a sin, and a couple of guys around uh, around him just pray over him and command any spirit to go. And in their case, Miller, they didn't even know for sure if he had a spirit. They're just like, if there's something here, Lord, make it go away. You know, like it, they weren't shouting and screaming and stomping on the devil, and um, you know. <laughs> quoting 14 page prayers like I see people do sometimes they didn't uh they didn't like have the demon's name or it, like I just told it to go and I met with the guy like uh sometime later at least a month later 
And uh, this particular sin struggle had completely been removed and he had had it for like his entire adult life. And so, uh, and so I just mentioned that story because I, I want our people to have hope. I don't want people to think, oh, well, maybe I, I don't want people to live with this torment of maybe I have a demon. You have a good dad in heaven and Jesus came to set us free. And if you come to the conclusion that you think you might have a demon, get some Christian friends and just be like, I think I might have a demon. Can you pray over me? And they can kick it out because we have authority in Jesus' name. Yeah, Uh, something I would add to that, Michael, just because I was afraid. I mean, the question that's never asked is, how do I know I don't have a demon? Right? So Mm -hmm. it's like, how do I know if there is one? How do I know that I don't have one? Uh, I had people come up to me at the Wisconsin conference saying, hey, could you pray for me for this? I committed this sin at one point in time. I wondered if maybe there's something that got in. So I walk them through a prayer of repentance, renunciation of the practice, and then I command an evil spirit to leave uh, You know, of that type. Nothing happens. So guess what? You got away with this one. Don't do it again. And that's what I said. Nothing yeah. there. Right. Because I think sometimes people act as though uh, you get a demon like any time you like anytime you sin, even, uh, and, and I'm just like, it really, it's not that way. The way I think of it as, uh, so Paul describes the age in which we live as this present evil age. So it's like we all live in a really dangerous neighborhood. And if you, um, and if you open the door to sin in your life, and um, I mean, especially there are certain kinds of sins that are real high handed, as the scripture would say, like uh, the occult or, you know, things like that. Um, but like whatever the sin is, high-handed or just presumptuous or just kind of anywhere in between, you, okay, so you leave a door maybe wide open, you leave a door creaked open, does that mean that your house will be broken into any night that you do that? Probably not. You probably get away with leaving your door like creaked open some nights. Now, if you sling it wide open and it's your front door, let's call that the occult, you're probably going to get a demon. Um, but and habitual sins that you commit over and over again, good like chance. You, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you're just but, saying, come here. It might as right. well be a bullseye. But let's imagine your door is shut, but not locked. That's like maybe, <laughs> okay. So smaller sins, there are greater and smaller sins. So, um, that doesn't mean you're going to get broken into. It doesn't mean you're going to get invaded. And in, and it's the same way with the devil. He doesn't have infinite resources and, you know he has to uh, he has to apportion them uh, in certain ways. And if he had infinite resources, we'd all be surrounded by a gazillion demons who'd like take advantage of every weakness. But he he doesn't have that kind of resource. Okay, uh, let's keep jumping through some of these questions, Miller. Sure. Um, next one is let's talk about um, sacred objects and relics. So here's the question: Can gifts of healing and deliverance be manifest? in objects or relics. Okay, so, and Miller, I say let's answer this on both sides. Um, I think when they're saying, can healing and deliverance be manifest in objects or relics, they're probably talking like about Paul's handkerchief that was taken to, uh, you know, that was passed around and resulted in healing. And uh, I love your take on that story, Miller. I might have you share it. But we might also talk about like the sacred objects too. Um on the other side, I read that question fast, and I thought that's what it was about, but I, I don't think so. But it's still a good question. Um, can there be objects that are used in some sort of satanic rituals or New Age rituals, uh, things like 
crystals, things like dream catchers uh, that the Native Americans would use. Can can these bring like a real spiritual harm in some way, or is it just a harmless object that someone thought was magical and they were just full of it? So uh, why don't we start with uh, the hanky side of things? Miller, can hankies <laughs> heal? Uh, so I don't necessarily think it's it's worth making a practice of using a handkerchief or vials of oil or water uh, that you sell or something like that. But, that obviously, but I have massive problems we, with. We will I don't know. here I'll, at Remnant Radio, we will sell you a uh, no. vial of Michael Miller's sweat for uh, no, $9.99. Not, but- <laughs> I will send you the the remnant radio slanket, <laughs> the slain in the spirit blanket. Uh, um, yeah, I, I don't like the idea of endowing objects with power and expecting those things to heal. And the reason why, and I know people go, well, you see it in the Bible. I'm like, yes, you do. You also see that there's a particular context. And if you look at Craig Keener's gigantic commentary, which I, I believe it or not, read a good chunk of when I was teaching through Acts, um, he talks about where this happened. The, the story is in Ephesus. I believe it's Acts 19, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it says that the sweat cloth of Paul was being taken to people and they were being healed and cured of evil spirits. Um and it says handkerchief, but it's literally the handkerchief was used in those days to wipe the sweat off. So this is a sweat rag. It was like a TD Jakes, a nice a TD Jakes yeah. preaching sweat rag. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, this this isn't like some nice ornate piece of cloth. You know, it was a it was a sweat rag. Um, but in Ephesus, they were also known to endow precious gemstones and amulets with power in in order to affect cures. And so here's the God of the Christians using the sweat cloth of the least of the apostles and showing himself as more powerful and supreme than the gods of the Ephesians who have to use these precious gemstones, things that cost a great deal of money. Um, so this is polemic, I think. This is meant to show that, that uh, the God of the Jews is far greater than the gods of the Ephesians. Um, so will that happen today? Yes. In places where, you know, that's kind of normal, I would expect God to show up in those kinds of ways. I would expect him to show himself more powerful powerful than the local deities of a particular region or a country or nation. Right. Um, I think you can expect those kinds of works, you know, maybe that being the sweat cloth, but maybe being other kinds of things. Um, so like even using spit versus, you know, precious anointed oils, like God can take the worthless things that is insulting and yet turn it upside down and do something wonderful and powerful and promising. Right. Um, right. But like, you know, I, I hear of people passing, you know, selling healing blankets or cloths or whatever. And I've even heard of stories where it's worked, but you mm-hmm. know, with that said, I don't hear of anybody like say taking acts chapter five where Peter's shadow heals people and and being like you know hey just walk through my shadow and you'll be good (laughs) like nobody's doing that and maybe the reason is because you couldn't package it and sell it i will say this don't sell prayer cloths like the last thing that you should be doing is anything that seems like selling a healing 
That is right. uh, that is sinful and absolutely wrong. We don't sell the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We don't sell praying for people's healing. Uh, no, we don't. We don't do those kinds of things. So uh, now let's talk on the sacred object side. Now you mentioned amulets. Now I remember in the uh, in the Ephesus story. I remember them burning books. They would burn their magic books, and it was reminiscent yeah. of the Old Testament. When they would, uh, they would burn anything that had any sort of magic Sacred residue, objects. if you will, anything that had yeah, to the do Asherah with poles. Asherah poles. They didn't like yeah. keep the Asherah pole and be like, you know what? This would make sense in, like uh, as a hall tree. I could change this into a grandfather clock. You know, carve it up. No, they just destroyed the thing. Moses didn't take the golden calf and be like. Okay, okay. Let's just cast the devils out of the golden calf, and then I can put it on my mantle. Like, I mean, I'm sure it was a nice golden calf, but uh, it was valuable. It just made all these people's gold. But no, he ground it into powder, and then weirdly made people drink it. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know if that, like, the Lord was in that part. Like, (laughs) no, there's a good polemic reason for why he did that. I can't remember it offhand, but I will find it for you, Michael. Somebody presented on this at ETS this last week. Oh, like literally this week. Yeah, he explained exactly why it was ground up into powder and put into water, and it was meant to to. Uh, I I can't remember it. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher it if I try to say it, but maybe I'll I'll present it on the next episode of our podcast because I've got to look up uh, the message. But man, when I heard this, I was going, "Wow, that's amazing!" As a matter of fact, you see it more than once in the Bible too. Yeah. Well, neither here nor there. The fact that they had them completely destroy. Anything that had to do with idolatry, anything that had to do with magic indicates that they saw something in these objects that made them worth, like, they needed to be got rid of. They didn't want it to in any way lead people astray. And uh, I could tell a story about one of our missionaries, or I could tell, uh, you know, who bought, like, this, ended up being, they they thought it was just, like, a, a cool sort of piece of art trinket trinket kind of deal and turned out to be imbued with some sort of like ritual like magic ritual kind of power or something given their kids nightmares and all this like horrific story that went on for weeks and then they finally figured it out trashed whatever it was prayed for the kid never had an, another issue josh has a story he's told on the show oh real we got similar about a dream catcher miller what were you gonna say well you remember the uh the arc was in the hands of was it the Philistines? Yeah, and it caused the statues of Dagon to bow down. Now, yeah, that's well, not yeah, that's Dagon, not just a symbolic thing. Right. Those were demons that had to bow the knee to the God of Israel. Well, are you talking about when Dagon fell over in his temple? Mm-hmm. I think is that what you're talking about. Well, I think the wasn't the Ark there as well. Uh. Yes, the ark was there as well, and some folk got tumors over it too. Yes, yeah, yeah, it was worse than just that. Yeah, but so, but there you have an object that, like, um, where God's presence went with the ark, and so it's like you're actually seeing it on both sides. And of course, if you think about the Old Testament tabernacle, they're uh, they're anointing everything and sanctifying everything. It was considered holy space. And so um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, we should take that seriously. We should not go on, when we go on vacation to Egypt, we should not go buy like 
cute little idols of like the ancient Egyptians, you know, those kinds of things. Bad news. Okay. So uh, let's go to the next question here. Let's move to the next subject, prophecy and prophets. Um, Miller, what are the standards for becoming a prophet in the New Testament and the challenges faced by Old Testament prophets? Challenge faced by the Old Testament prophets. So maybe I feel like people, they, they love to fit two questions in. <laughs> yeah. Narrow so that one down why, do we, why do we answer the first one? What are the standards for becoming a New Testament prophet? Uh, man, I don't know. I don't know if there is a standard expressly f- spelled out in Scripture for a, a, an Old or New Testament prophet. I know one of the common things that happens with prophets is they're taken into the counsel of God. So like you see every major prophet in the Old Testament, uh, there's always some thor- sort of throne room experience or council room experience. So like Isaiah, he literally saw the throne. Uh, Jeremiah was brought into God's council. And one of his complaints against the false prophets is they've never stood in the council of God. Uh, Ezekiel, a similar thing. So, And just to be clear, I think this is different than saying a prophet versus somebody with a gift of prophecy. Because it does seem like the Spirit is given to all the people of God. So on some level, they're marked by the power of God, which usually looks like prophecy. Um, but for a person to be a prophet of Israel, uh, there was always sort of that throne room experience. Um, do you have other qualifiers for that that I'm not thinking of? Uh, well, I think New Testament, um, not not so much. So there's prophet and then there's prophecy. And even those are not exactly the same. You know, when it says that, uh, was it Judas and Silas, not like the bad Judas, but a different Judas, um, in Acts 15, that they were prophets, or that the daughters of Philip in Acts 21 were prophetesses, what that means is they had developed a track record. They were consistent enough in their prophetic ministry that people are like, "That's that person's a prophet, just like... Uh, you know, that person's a teacher or that person's an evangelist. In fact, Philip was called Philip the Evangelist, and rightfully so, because in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 8, he's hardcore evangelist. So, uh, and so these, these titles developed, but not like you think, not like, hey, I'm the official t- uh, prophet, here's my business card, not like that. It was more just like, that's just, this is my gift, so they would just identify that way, but We're wrong to think of it as an authoritative office. There's no indicator in the New Testament that prophets hold authoritative offices in the church. And uh, one indicator of this is in Acts chapter 2, where you see uh, my spirit will be poured out, your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. They'll prophesy, so uh, so both sexes, all ages, uh, all economic classes, it's a universal pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which the pouring out of the Holy Spirit leads to prophecy. This is one of the great arguments that prophecy is to continue in the church, because he says this happens in the last days. If you believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the new covenant age, then you necessarily must, in my opinion, also believe in prophecy, because revelation is one of the great works of the Spirit, and he reveals in the form of prophecy. Now, in this case, Specifically, since he mentions your uh, uh, your sons and your daughters, he's talking about young people. So when we so when we say things like requirements uh, to be a prophet, 
Um, nobody was like checking the credentials of somebody's eight-year-old daughter who got a dream and shared it with a leadership team, you know, in, in the New Testament church. No, like, no, they would just, and again, there, there's, there's the difference. There's a prophet or prophetess, and then one who receives a prophecy. Uh, I believe some people in the New Testament church can be gifted prophets. And then there are others, in fact, I would say every believer can hear from God and can hear from God prophetically. And so, uh, in fact, I would challenge my cessationist brothers and sisters out there, just ask God, like, hey, God, if this is really real, give me a dream. Give me a vision. If it's really real, uh, and hey, if it's not real, he didn't have to. But uh, anyway, all that to say, I don't think uh, there are credentials for somebody to share a prophetic word. And I just think, um, yeah, so I, I wouldn't put it that way. But are there credentials to a prophecy? Then yes. Yes, there are. Be uh, for one, it needs to be right <laughs> to be uh, truly a prophecy. And it, it can't contradict the scriptures. Like it it's got to be in line. The scriptures, yeah. right? So at least if we're going to say that this was from God, from top to bottom, mm -hmm. revelation, interpretation, application, we have to say it's, it's got to be accurate. Um, right. So, uh, so yeah, and First Corinthians fourteen twenty nine and First Thessalonians five nineteen to twenty two, uh, we're encouraged to test prophecy, to weigh prophecy, to discern prophecy. Uh, in those passages, it doesn't really tell us how, but uh, but we know that it can't contradict the scriptures. Written revelation trumps uh, spontaneous revelation. We also know that. Um, uh, what, what are some of the other things? Let, let's let's move to that question, Miller. Yeah, well, how do you the, test a prophecy? Not just like the prophet, but the prophecy. Yeah, so it does seem like accuracy. Usually, the tough thing about certain words is they can't be tested until they come to pass. If it's a foretelling of any kind, but oftentimes when a foretelling is given, you see this in scripture a number of times where some sort of sign is also accompanied it. Um, so we say this with, uh, uh, words that are directional in nature, that it should, it should never, you should never make a decision based solely off a prophetic word. It should either cause you to pray about something you never considered and let God confirm it, or it should already confirm a leading you already have in your heart. So you, you, your, your own testimony will bear witness to whatever that prophetic word is. Um, and then, you know, with words of knowledge, that's pretty easy to test. You just simply say, is that true? Uh, a word of wisdom, um, as far as that goes, is usually directional in nature. You know, it's like you're at a crossroads in life. You don't know whether to go left or right. And then a person comes in with a gift, uh, a word of wisdom. and says, go right. And it confirms exactly what you need to know. But they didn't know that you were trying to decide between left and right. Um, and that's why it's revelatory. That's why it's sort of confirming in nature. Um, I'm trying to think. Some things you just don't know and you're not going to know. And you have to kind of just... Yeah be okay with that and hold on to it and see if something comes up later. Right. But I think one of the big safeguards that I would love to see more of in uh, the charismatic church is I believe that at least in most cases, hearing God is a team sport. Uh, Acts chapter 11, whenever there's Agabus predicts a famine coming over the entire Roman world, he comes down with prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. They say down, even though technically on our maps, it's up north. But anyway, uh, come from Jerusalem to Antioch. And uh, and so he makes this stunning prophecy, like basically economic downturn for the whole globe. 
and it comes to pass. But before it comes to pass, they test the word, and together they deem this was truly from God, and then they send Paul and Barnabas to send an offering to the churches in Jerusalem to help provide famine relief. And so, uh, and so they're doing it as a team. Later in Acts 13, the church hears together. There were prophets and teachers at the church in Antioch. They're worshiping the Lord and fasting, a great thing to do if you want to hear the Lord. And, uh, and they hear the Holy Spirit say, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to do. They hear God together. They send out Paul and Barnabas. Acts 16, the Apostle Paul has a dream. And the dream is, a, is an image of a Macedonian waving, saying, come over here and help us. And then it says, we concluded that God was calling us to Macedonia. Paul has a dream, but Paul doesn't say, hey, God gave me a dream. This is what it means. We're going. Everybody go, I guess we're going. No, it says we concluded. So hearing God usually is a team sport. I say usually because there are times when we have to go against the grain. I think that's a rarity that does happen for Paul in Acts 21. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready to go to Jerusalem, not only go to Jerusalem, but to die. So uh, Paul kind of stands on his own on that one, and and that can happen, but I would say as the norm, our big safeguard, and especially Here's, for major life decisions, and hearing the Lord is we hear God together. So uh, another I, major yeah. key in this on prophet and prophecies is the person delivering this word uh, in a local community. Yeah. Do they have actual accountability for what they prophesy? Or are they going from place to place, sort of claiming to be a wounded prophet? They get rejected from every church they're in. Um, that's a huge criteria for me. Are yeah. they? Do they hold to the confession of the faith? Um, these are, I'd say, pretty common standards. But I would say this about anybody, whether they be a prophet or they be uh, somebody who has a gift of healing or, you know, go on down the line. These are basic standards for all Christians in all places. They hold to the confession of the faith. They're in a local body where they regularly take communion, hear the teaching of the word, are able to be disciplined by the local body and held accountable. Um, those would be big tests for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Matthew 7, beware of false prophets, their wolves and sheep's clothing. So if somebody doesn't have righteous character, if somebody's trying to, you know, doesn't have a righteous doctrinal belief system, we, we don't believe them. And so that, like, years ago, we, there was a woman, I think her name was Stephanie in Australia, released this prophetic word about all these terrible things that were going to happen. And I remember we did a show, and we were like, listen, we don't know who this woman is. She's not standing with elders. Like, there, we have no indication that her elders approve of this message or that she's submitted to a church. We don't know whether she ascribes to the Book of Mormon or to the Bible just because she uses the name Jesus. Uh, you know, is she a oneness Pentecostal that believes heresy about the Trinity? Uh, like, where is this woman doctrinally? What's her character like? We can't verify these things, so the church should not be respondling, respondling, <laughs> respondling or buckling in fear is what I was trying to go, mixing words, uh, over this prophecy, the same, you know, when Dana Coverstone shared his, uh, his word, I felt the same way. Now, I think he, if I remember right, he might have had some elder backing on that. I don't know, but... Pretty uh, sure he did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which that actually helps. That helps a lot. Uh, yeah. And if they're backing, then, you know, uh, presumably they're backing both the word and his character. And, and that actually makes it more worthwhile to share. Now, on Dana's uh, words, I just remember them not coming to pass, the ones that I looked at. 
So yeah, that is well, yeah, he claimed hyperinflation. We haven't had hyperinflation. We've had quite a bit of inflation, though. Yeah, I think the but you don't the, have to be a prophet thing... to predict inflation when the government is pumping the system. No, you definitely don't, especially at the time of COVID when that all took place. Uh, yeah, I, I think something I would just this is just a this isn't a part of the question, just something we've said on the radio a number of times. It's worth mentioning again. Uh, I would be skeptical of YouTube profits. People giving big prophetic, big sweeping prophetic words about the next year, you know, giving like a prophetic word that sounds no different than a horoscope, like prophecies for 2024, prophecies for 2023. And, and it's part of the reason why we do this end of the year prophetic review every year, because there's nobody who seems to be kind of putting all of that stuff out there and going, hey, look, let's just weigh it. Let's just see. And we want to continue to, to shed light on this because at the end of the day, these people aren't being held accountable and they need to be. Yeah. So Miller, what's your opinion about like, I don't know, like YouTube, uh, theology channels, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I would say burn them, burn, burn down. Burn. How do you, how do you burn a, a YouTube channel? Miller? I don't know. I'm just going to leave you in the basement. Let's be the first to figure that out though. <laughs> Let's move to uh, the gift of tongues, Miller's favorite spiritual gift. I mean, if you hang out with Miller, <laughs> there's just going to be some tongues. Don't tell people this, dude. <laughs> it's like when you guys talk about the foot thing. Like, do you know how many people come up to me now and ask you, for prayer for their feet? You are, you are the apostle <laughs> of tongue speech. But I will tell you that for the cessationists, <laughs> for the cessationists who are like, y'all's tongues don't don't sound like a real language. Listen to Miller. Miller sounds like a real <laughs> language. Go, Miller. That. I'm just kidding. I don't have the gift of interpretation. All right. So uh, let's talk about tongues. So question. Sure. Uh, we have questions about the doctrine of the virgin birth. Or why didn't Jesus didn't have an That's earth. not a that's gift not, of tongues, tongues question. Okay. Seeking advice <laughs> on the legitimacy of the gift of tongues and personal experiences related to it. Um, okay. Yeah. Legitimacy. Uh, okay, Miller. I'll let you take it legitimacy of tongues and uh experiences related to it okay well it's legitimate because it's in the scriptures it's legitimate because it's literally called a gift of tongues i think the the thing that most people are saying is there are some that feel very strongly that it has to be an earthly natural language uh, and to that i'd go maybe i understand why you go to acts 2 and say that's why we get that but it's just not explicit everywhere in the scripture you know, you have Paul saying not everybody understands them. So, you know, I think the, the problem is, is, is how we define the word legitimate tongue. Uh, I certainly believe that every tongue has meaning, whether there's somebody in the room that will understand it, whether it's a known language, uh, you know, that you can put on Google languages and get an interpretation for. I don't know. It, it might could very well be a, a heavenly language that only angelic beings or God himself knows for all I know, because it's just not that clear. Uh, I do think that there are tongues that, that are earthly natural languages that people do understand. And I say that because my personal one, I think it happens in Acts 2. Uh, but then also anecdotally, it's happened to me. I've had people understand me speaking uh, uh, romance type languages, uh, Portuguese, most often uh, Italian, uh, some Spanish words. Um, which all of those languages have a lot of similarities. So I've had on multiple occasions people telling me what I've said in those tongues. Um, and then I've had a number of people interpret 
tongues who don't know those languages, but they have a gift of interpretation. Now, we saw a number of those things happen at our most remnant radio conference that we did in Oklahoma City back in October. So um, I, I'm not sure what else to say as far as the legitimacy of the gift of tongues. I mean, it's in the Bible. Paul says, don't forbid it. Right. Well, you know, there was a New York Times uh, article years ago that studied tongue speakers. And linguists could not find, like, patterns that seemed anything like any sort of earthly language, to which, you know, the cessationists and, uh, and honestly, some charismatics believe that, uh, well, so some, I, I don't know, I was about to go down a tangent. I'm not going to go down that one. I'm just going to stick with this article. Okay, so, um, the, so they, they didn't find linguistic connections, but what they did... Uh, what they did discover is that what charismatics say happens when they speak in tongues actually happens. And that is that like their mind would enter into this state of peace. And, uh, and you know, the scripture says that we're edifying our spirit when we speak in tongues. And I definitely encourage, if you're out there and you speak in tongues, encourage you to speak in tongues often. Speak in tongues while you're washing the dishes and driving down the road and so on. And do so in faith, believing that this is actually building up my spirit. And the science, uh, while it can't really detect what's happening in your spirit, having a mind that's really at peace is something that we would expect to be the case if your spirit was being edified. I think um, the the linguist that? thing is the linguist thing should be talked about though. Just because a a linguist yeah, okay, doesn't understand it and finds no pattern recognition. Well, that doesn't qualify anything to me other than that there is no pattern recognition and there's nothing there for that. But, but the fact is, what are you going to base your word? What, what are you going to base your belief system on? What a linguist tells you or what the scriptures teach? At the end of the day, we are called people of the book. We, we have placed our faith in Jesus. He very much affirmed the inerrancy and the authority of the scriptures. And so I'm going to follow his leadings on this. I think this is my concern. Is I think this is part of the cessationist argument, though, is they'll say, hey, look, linguists have studied it. It's all just gibberish. And I go, hold on. What does that have to do with the Bible? It has nothing to do with the Bible. That's an ad hominem argument, like most cessationist arguments. But uh, you get my point. I digress. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, personally, I am one who believes that tongues can be English, and that tongues can't, or, or I'll say not English. <laughs> As a, I mean, I'm sure they could if you're like in Russia and you're like speaking in tongues and for you it's English. <laughs> um, but tongues can be earthly languages. I would say tongues can also be heavenly languages. And the reason I would say that is that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, he who speaks in a tongue speaks between himself and God. Okay, so first of all, like, if it was an earthly language, we would expect him to say he who speaks in tongues is speaking to people on earth, or at least to people on earth and to God. But to single it out to say that you're speaking between yourself and God seems to put it in the category of what we would sometimes label, or what many charismatics would label, a prayer language. And it would seem to be a heavenly language, a language that God in heaven understands that people on earth don't. In addition, the fact that interpreters are required, a spiritual gift of interpretation. If it was earthly languages every time, and it does seem like in Acts chapter 2 to me that it probably is earthly languages there. But 
uh, it's jumping to a conclusion, in my opinion, that therefore every other time it's mentioned, it must be earthly languages. We have to take each case in uh, on its own merits. And so 1 Corinthians 14, Paul doesn't say like, Hey, if people are speaking in tongues, check and see if there's anyone there who speaks that language. And if you think it might be Russian, go find a Russian and bring them to church. And maybe they... No, he's actually saying, bring somebody who has a spiritual gift of interpretation. Not even translation, just interpretation. And so it seems like... It's it's not... Is it ironclad? No. But then when I pair that with the fact that in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says... Uh, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I am nothing. Uh, again, it's not ironclad. I do think he's speaking in superlative kind of language there, poetic language. But I don't think that takes away from the reality, the fact that he does, in a context that is all about spiritual gifts, he mentions the possibility of tongues of angels. And in that same context, in chapter 12, if I have all prophecy or all knowledge, uh, if I have faith that can move mountains, etc., he's walking through the expressions of spiritual gifts that he's addressing in chapter 12 and 14. And so it makes sense that there would be tongues of angels. So uh, I have a space for that in, uh, in my theology, and it seems to me like if angels really have their own languages, that when people speak them, I would expect that our linguists would have trouble understanding what those meant. <laughs> and uh, and if you think about it, angels, I, uh, I would guess they did, actually, for sure, according to the scripture, predate human beings. Well, they must have had a language of some kind, uh, and it probably wasn't Russian or English. I don't know why I keep coming back to Russian, but uh, to all our Russian viewers out there, hello. Uh, but anyway, I... I would guess that they must have their own language, and why couldn't uh, the tongues that we speak in be that language? That's that's my case. What do you think, Miller? I agree. That's cool. It. I agree. All right. Well, hey, let's uh, let's keep rolling. Um, we had do, a uh... lot. We had a lot of questions about the relation. Let's see which one we want. The questions between like, go with... faith and the manifestations of the gift. Miller, why don't you talk yeah. a little bit about? Let's say specifically faith and healing, because there are those out there that like, you know, uh, my my wife, for instance, she uh, when she was a teenager was surrounded by people who would tell her like because um, she had migraine headaches at the time before Miller, um, God visited her in grace through your healing prayer. Uh, she had debilitating headaches that took her out for multiple days a week. She just all she could do was take a nap. And uh, like if she was in the middle of work, like she just had to go to a back room and lay down for a few hours. Like it, it was terrible. Uh, it was every week. And then in a moment when you prayed over her, she was healed. So God does heal today. Uh, but all that to say, earlier in her ex faith experience, people would tell her like, you know, well, you're already healed. You just have to wait for the healing to be manifest and those kinds of things. And, and to... Don't speak that over you. That's just unbelief. Like you're like, I, I just have migraines and I just want prayer. No, no, you don't have migraines. If I don't have migraines, why would I need prayer? <laughs> you know. Miller, yeah. can you speak into that? Yeah, I think there's 
a major misunderstanding about faith. And I, I, this one actually bothers me just because I, I see people in turmoil and hurt because of these kind of things. So it, it really does I take this one a bit more personally. Um, I don't like the idea of defining faith as psychological certainty because it creates too many inconsistencies and it puts too much, it puts too much of the onus on us to get results. So like this idea of, well, you're already healed. You just need to wait for your healing to be made manifest. Okay. Well, telling somebody that leaves them with a logical inconsistency. So does that mean I still pray for it or no, I shouldn't pray for it because I'm already healed. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do. So, and I don't think that's the way we should operate. I think we continue to ask the Lord to be healed until we're healed, plain and simple. Um, but I also don't define faith as psychological certainty or a knowing that you're going to a knowing that you're going to get what you're asking for. I, there is one sense in which we know as believers in Christ that we are going to be healed. We know that because we are going to be raised from the dead into newness of life. What is mortal will be swallowed up in what is immortal. We will suddenly take on a glorified form that resembles our Lord. He was the first fruits, the first born from the dead. Um, and so we're going to be like him and put on immortality. And that, that, in that day, there will be no more sickness. Our bodies will be incorruptible. So you can rest assured on one side of the resurrection uh, or the other, you will be healed. It has been paid for. And if you've believed in Christ, then that is a promise that you will receive uh, eternal life in the life to come. And that eternal life even starts now. But uh, what do we do about healings now? How does uh, faith play a part in healings today? Um, I, de I define faith as confidence in God's goodness and in his character. So my faith in God is unwavering based upon whether or not I get healed or don't. My faith in God is he's still good. And I, he, I still trust him for life. Uh, I think Job's story, you know, many people look at it as a, you know, a story to get people to trust God when they're going through a great difficulty. I don't know why God has done this to you, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't think that's the, the essence of the book of Job. I think the essence of the book of Job is to see whether or not we're in this for our own personal benefit to see whether or not we're in this because of the results we get or because we've anchored our faith in a person, not because of what he's promised us, but because of who he is, mm -hmm. that who he is in and of himself is good and worthy to be worshiped. Um, and I think that's a lesson all of us need to learn at some point in time. Like all of us need to have that kind of Job like experience where, you know, where, where our faith is actually proven, where we're actually shown to trust in God, regardless of whether life goes well for us or not, regardless of what he promises us or not, but simply because he is who he is. He's worthy of, of being worshipped. So I look at faith like that. God is good. He is kind. He has the utmost righteous character, and he cares about people, and he's compassionate. And so do I think faith plays a part? Yes, I, I do. I think if you have that kind of trust in God, you can expect to see God do all kinds of things um, because you're going to be the type of person who asks God to do those things, mm. plain and simple. That's if good. you believe that God is a healer, guess what you're going to ask him to do? When your son or daughter is hurting, before you take them to the doctor, you're going to ask God to heal them because you know who he is. He's good. He's kind. He's a healer. So... Sorry, I could go on and on about this, but I, I really I dislike the the other view where you feel like you have to conjure something up and you just need to maintain some level of psychological certainty. And yet really what you're doing is living in denial half the time. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that's honest. Yeah. 
So that's good. That's good. Well, hey, I think we have time for probably one more question. And uh, why don't we tackle the question of generational curses? Are they a thing? And, oh, man. Um, I know. Yeah, here in the last I don't know if I can minutes, tackle that. I, we'll, I need more we'll scriptures. answer <laughs> our generational curse as a thing. Uh, I'll be honest. I don't love the word curse to talk about like the people of God, because I think of the story of Balaam trying to curse Israel and he goes after it three times and he can't curse them. All he can do is bless them because they're blessed. We are the blessed people of God. And it almost conjures up images like, is, is God cursing his own people? Like, what does this mean? It's, it's just kind of weird. Uh, but even with that said, it depends on what we mean by curse. I mean, we can think like, for instance, uh, in, in Adam, we all became sinners and we, de- we received in our birth this fallen nature, this sinful nature that has an inclination towards sin. Uh, Ephesians 2, 3, all, all of us, like the rest, were gratifying the cravings of sinful nature. We were by nature objects of wrath. So, so our very nature, it's bent toward this, and we inherited that from Adam. If you want to call that a curse, whatever, um, but we can at least have evidence that there, there is like a spiritual negative thing that was passed down as a result of Adam. So there's at least something to that for sure. Uh, and then physically, you can think through like you go to the doctor and you, for the first time you're filling out all your forms and it takes a million years. And they're like, tell us your medical history, tell your mom's dad's medical history, tell your grandma, grandpa. Why? Because if you had diabetes in the family, if you have high cholesterol in the family, these things are passed down. So we're not strangers to the idea that negative things can be passed down to us. And certainly sinful patterns can be passed down to us. That's biblical. Exodus uh, chapter 34, in the Lord's name, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And uh, and to, to the thousandth generation, he blesses with steadfast love. But to the third and fourth generation, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on their children. And and so I I think you can make a case that like, I mean, you look at in, in family lines, for instance, and it's like workaholism can run in the family. Alcoholism can run in the family. Drug abuse can run in the family. Promiscuity can run in the family. And so it's like we all inherit the sinful nature of our father, Adam, but our other fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers pass along their own sort of unique expression of that sinfulness. And so I, I think we can all say, yeah, those things are true. Um, whatever you want to call it, maybe call it generational baggage. Yeah, we all got a little bit of that. Um, but I do think uh, when we have the new covenant promise, it's relevant. Um, here, let me see. Jer- Jeremiah 31 right here. Uh it says this, right before the promise of the new covenant, it says, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, what the fathers did, the kids are paying for it. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man eats sour grapes. His teeth shall be set on age. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And so in the very same context that it's talking about uh, generational consequences for sin... It says there's coming a day when that won't be anymore, and there's also coming a day when there's a new covenant. So how does that come together? Well, I don't think that it means that the moment I'm born again, 
that I won't have any of the sinful proclivities that my fathers and grandfathers had. There's no way, for sure. That's still with me. Romans chapter 7. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, yeah, like, for me to get delivered of that completely, I need Jesus to come back, for sure. However, as it relates to my ongoing sanctification and my ongoing purification. I believe what the new covenant does is it gives me a new power. It gives me a law written on my mind and my heart and the Holy Spirit empowering me to live out a breaking off from generational patterns that came before and to start a new branch in the family tree where I'm passing off and leaving a legacy of of steadfast love and the fruits of the Spirit and love for Jesus and all of these things. And so I don't believe the new covenant means that, that this new covenant in context of children eating sour grapes and all that, I don't think it means that the moment I'm born again, I don't have any of the sinful proclivities that I once had. It can't mean that. It's obviously not true. I do think it means that we have the power in the new covenant to break free from those patterns, to not come into agreement with them. That's what I think it means. There is one more passage in Ezekiel that also quotes that same proverb, the children, uh, fathers ate sour grapes and children's teeth are set on edge. I think it's a different context there. Uh, If I remember right, it's Ezekiel 18. And uh, the, the context there is it seems like Israel was misusing that proverb to try to make an excuse and be like, oh, we're just, you know, suffering because of our parents' sins. And God's like, actually, you agreed with those sins. It's your fault too. So uh, anyway, so those are a few thoughts on generational curses in like a two or three minute nutshell. Miller, what do you think of all that? Uh, I don't have a problem with the language of curse. Uh, I think it is biblical. I think you've got a curse of yeah, <laughs> I think the curse of Ham is a good example. It's something that's carried for 500 years, uh, more longer. Um, you've also got, you mentioned the curse of Balaam. Um, you know, he, was trying, he was supposed to, to curse the Israelites, but instead he curses Balak and his people. Yeah, so it kind of backfires instead of uh, yeah. going on. So I do think there is room for curse. When you mentioned the passage uh, about the new covenant in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, I believe, um, I love that passage i do think it's fulfilled partially and yet to be fulfilled and i would put that in the already not yet framework in the same way that jesus christ has paid for every sin yet we still struggle uh he is going to remove the sin nature but in the meantime we fight against it we make war against it um there is also newness of life where that will one day be gone Uh, i think the same thing is true with the curses he's paid for every curse for those of us who've trusted in christ in Christ, our curses were nailed to the cross because he was cursed on that tree for us. And yet, I think we're still experiencing the power of the curses, specifically the curse of the fall. Um, and I don't doubt that there are there is sins of ancestors that can bring curses on family lines. Um, and yet, because of what Christ has done, because of the new covenant, there is power to set us free from those things. So yeah. I don't think we'll see. Well, I don't think we'll see the end of all of those things until death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, ending the present evil age and uh, seeing in full the age to come uh, where God rules completely. So uh, there was one of the things I was going to say about that. Oh, and anecdotally, I've seen it. Um, I've seen people who uh, brought a curse on their family line because of idolatry. And, you know, a a young believer who's a, not a young believer, a person who is a Christian who's never done the idolatrous actions 
uh, yet is still suffering under a curse of their grandfather because of their idolatry. Uh, specifically, I saw this with the Masonic uh, Lodge, a guy in my church. Uh, his grandfather participated in masonry. He himself was never in the Masonic Lodge, but his grandfather had brought a curse on their line in perpetuity because of uh, his involvement in the Masonic Lodge. So I walked this guy through a deliverance prayer, uh, renouncing the blessings and cursings of the Masonic Lodge that were brought on by his grandfather. And then I cast a spirit out of him. Uh, he was delivered and yeah. no longer suffered under that curse. He was able to sleep. Uh, he had, I, I think there were some lung issues that also cleared up. Yeah. So, yeah, well, I, I agree with that. I mean, the first part that you said of the already not yet, I think we would, I would say uh, we were, we were, fully we were set free when we first met jesus we are being set free as we walk with jesus and we will be completely set free when jesus comes back um so same kind of thing that you're talking about yeah. and uh, and i think yes that when i think about a curse i, I mean there is the case i mean there are you don't there like the language where somebody like seems... literally has had an ancestor pronounce curses over their generations. And you see yes. that in the scripture where, uh, where the unbelieving Jews who crucified, uh, their, uh, their Messiah, the Lord. Jesus, they said, let his blood be on our own heads and the bloods of our children. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say those kids needed some inner healing <laughs> after that, yeah. right? Like, that's a bad thing to say. So, uh, yeah, people do that. Like, yeah, curse their descendants. Like, what in the world? Why would you do such a thing? Well, um, like you said, they're, they're just things that people do as formalities and rituals. And a lot of times, because we live in a secular age, we just kind of don't think it means anything. People who step into masonry, people who step into fraternities, sororities, are uttering, not all of them, but oftentimes all kinds of curses on themselves, like ritualistic, real spiritual stuff. I'm like, that's mm -hmm. bad. But, you know, Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 25 too, that says like a fluttering swallow and a darting, or like a darting sparrow and a fluttering swallow. So an undeserved curse will not come to rest. And that's where we get into applying the blood of Jesus to set us free from all curses. So if you ever uh, have... You know, and the armor of God yeah, as well. If, if you ever placed it has no a curse, place to land. If you ever placed a curse over yourself or... Uh, or you know of ancestor or yeah, ancestors who set a curse over you and you're out, just, uh, just break it off in the name of Jesus and invite Jesus to break it off. Get somebody to pray with you and y'all break it off and Jesus, Jesus, take care of that. He's good. God bless you. All right. I like your Southern Texan. Y'all break it off now. <laughs> y'all did, y'all did break it off. All right. Well guys, that's it for today. Hey, we got a lot of questions about like, do you know a church in this area that is word and spirit? You know, in other words, that's like really into the Bible and into the Holy Spirit. Um, do you know a church in this area? Do you know a church in this area? And, and so many questions we can't, we can't answer them all. And honestly, in a lot of cases, we just actually don't know the answer. Uh, want you to know that Sam Storms, he announced this at our September conference, Sam Storms is launching a Convergence Church Network. And, uh, and the Remnant Radio guys are actually on the board of that network along with a few other folk. And I, I'm being like Josh, always saying folk in the in the singular. <laughs> you've gone you've gone full Texan Oklahoman <laughs> <I> today. <laughs> so uh, anyway, Sam is starting that. We're going to start putting together a list of churches. Uh, churches are going to be able to join it. You're going to have access to training and the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are more. I mean, Remnant 
is kind of for the everyday person, although many pastors tune in, but, uh, but the Convergence Church Network, it's the Convergence of Word and Spirit, uh, is going to uh, specialize in elders and pastors and church leaders and how do you get this kind of stuff going in your church. So uh, you guys tune in for that. It's, uh, I expect it to, to start in this coming year. So, uh, so just tune in and uh, go to theremnantradio.com and sign up for our newsletter. And we will let you know whenever this, uh, whatever this comes out. So uh, other thing I want you guys to know, I know we've been promising you who've been watching the cessationist documentary, like, Hey, we're going to get you the, the notes. Sorry for the delay on that. We will get that, uh, to you. I expect, uh, Josh said after Thanksgiving, he's going to kind of, we have like our own version of notes. It's a little bit messy and we've just been adding a lot to it. So apologize for the delay on that. We will get it to you as promised. In the meantime, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. Uh, if you want to donate now, <clears throat> if you want to donate, you can uh, find in the link or in the description a link to Patreon. If you want to donate as little as five dollars a month, or to PayPal if you want to make a one-time donation. Guys, I hope you enjoy your Thanksgiving. Eat some turkey, eat some dressing, and if you're not in America and you don't do Thanksgiving, well, Repent. I hope you have a great Thursday. <laughs> God bless you all, and have a great week. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.